Before we get started, a note. It was sheer idiot happenstance the January 6th Capitol riots took place while I was writing this. Neither of these two events came completely out of the blue. After I finished writing Delaware by Dark last season, I had every intention of doing a deep dive into Pennsylvania's paranormal hotspots. And what kind of exploration would that be if I didn't spend some time reading and writing about Gettysburg, the place where our Union was saved during the Civil War? I knew going into next season, a trip to that small, historic place was unavoidable. You could also say the exact same thing for the violence that happened that bleak day in January. The sixth felt like the eventual culmination of five years of deceit. Since before the 2016 election, a certain grifting liar made it quite clear the only thing that could have stopped his victory were underhanded cheats and theft. He looked right into the assembled cameras, right into our living rooms, and lied to our faces. The only way he would lose was if they stole it. So none of us should have been surprised that the same dog-tired lines would be trotted out four years later in the middle of a sea of ineptitude, cruelty, and plague. And yet still the clumsy, obvious tongue separated us even as it licked at the gaping maw of a man who would profit from our discord and devour our society. In that one's mind, the only thing worth saving was the ego of a narcissistic, whimpering, entitled little boy. That was the price of American ideals. That was the price of American peace. And so on January 6th, the accidental seditionists and the separatist militias and the caustically nihilistic traitors flooded the Capitol building. They destroyed windows, bludgeoned cops, threatened to lynch the ever-loyal vice president. They looted podiums and laptops, rushed the floor of the legislative body, and ineptly attempted to steal what they claimed had been stolen. These people were trampled, one was shot to death, and now many of them face federal charges. All for a lie told by a man who so rarely tells the truth. Except, that's not right. Not exactly. Americans have been enemies for a long time now. We think of this conflict as the eternal culture war, or the verbal sparring of decrepit and unhinged politicians held hostage by their constituency. But I come from a place where on April 19th, 1995, a man decided that 168 lives was an acceptable price to pay to make a political point to the U.S. government. Political violence is a lesson all Oklahomans learned that day. It's a lesson taught in the past, but one we seem bent on teaching each other yet again. It occurred to me in those long days sandwiched between presidencies that there are Americans who want to kill people who think like me. They've been sold a terrible lie, that one's political compass determines whether or not they are your people, that only people who think as you do are truly American. At the risk of dating this podcast, I'll quote from a frightfully unhinged writer named Glenn Elmers in the ultra-conservative Claremont Institute magazine. Quote, Let's be blunt. The United States has become two nations occupying the same country. When pressed or in private, many would agree. Fewer are willing to take the next step 
and accept that most people living in the United States today, certainly more than half, are not Americans in any meaningful sense of the term. I don't just mean the millions of illegal immigrants. Obviously, those foreigners have bypassed the regular process for entering our country and probably will never assimilate to our language and culture, are politically as well as legally aliens. I'm really referring to the many native-born people, some of whose families have been here since the Mayflower, who may technically be citizens of the United States, but are no longer, if they ever were, Americans. They do not believe in, live by, or even like the principles, traditions, and ideals that until recently defined Americans as a nation and as a people. It is not obvious what we should call these citizen aliens, these non-American Americans, but they are something else. He then goes on to write, If you are a zombie or a human rodent who wants to wear a shadow life of timid conformity, then put away this essay and go memorize the poetry of Amanda Gorman. Real men and women who love honor and beauty, keep reading. Authentic Americans still want to have decent lives. They want to work, worship, raise a family, and participate in public affairs without being treated as insolent upstarts in their own country. Therefore, we need a conception of a stable political regime that allows for the good life. The U.S. Constitution no longer works. Aliens, zombies, human rodents. Elmer's and his ilk would have you believe that anyone who doesn't share your politics is less than you. Less than human. It's the kind of thinking that gives permission to no end of degradation and awfulness. It's the kind of thinking that results in a firefighter holding a dying infant on a spring day in Oklahoma City. Those who would seek to court and harness that murderous impulse, that evil mentality, are more wicked than any of the devils in the following tales. Those actors rooting through the mess and muck of the internet know there is much to gain by selling fear and hatred. They profit from cliques, engagements, and conspiracy. They would short-sell our future for 30 pieces of silver up front. Will these malignancies be the one who suffer should their words blossom into barbed flowers? Or will it be you and your neighbors who bear the cost of blood and fire and inescapable death? It's not my wish to turn these episodes into a political statement or manifesto, but it bears examination given our recent events and the subject matter of this short interlude before season two. Quoting from the Christian Gospels of the New Testament, Abraham Lincoln told us that a house divided against itself cannot stand. This holds true even today, hundreds of years after he spoke those words. And so, in that reconciliatory spirit, consider the people you have been told are your enemies during the next three episodes. And as always, the occluded discusses death, mayhem, and places better left unexplored. Listener discretion is advised. And now dim the lights free your mind and open your eyes. Where do you even start? That's the question I keep asking myself. You do the reading. You gather up all those scraps of information like fall leaves on your front yard. You spend hours sipping beer in the darkness listening to music and trying to wrap your hands around it. 
the enormity of the thing. You try to think of what you could possibly add to the conversation. They say the hardest part is starting, so maybe that's what I'll do. America is at war. Political infighting has torn the nation asunder, and thousands of people have lost faith in their fellow citizens. As both sides become entrenched in a protracted culture war, partisans on both sides bathe for scorched earth, scream for blood. There can be no compromise in a conflict such as this, especially when considering the worldview of the participants. One faction clings to the past. Bound by the tradition of their ancestors, they've gone stagnant. Drunk off of their hierarchies and groupthink, they view their enemies as out-of-touch elites with no respect for their culture. Enemies who from their cities strip sarcasm and scorn upon them. Enemies who interfere with their right to self-government and seek to undermine their way of life. The other faction clings to orthodoxies of their own. Their enemies are rednecks, hillbillies, racists. People who'd hold on to sacred nostalgia and a truth that never was. People who would cling to God and guns and glorified versions of a past that has long since curdled. They consider themselves more civilized, more cultured, and they wonder how long these backwards people are going to hold them back from a happier, more prosperous future for all of humanity. It reminds me of the long, quiet moments just before someone asks for the divorce papers. It takes me back to when I'm seven, and I'm lying in the dark listening to my parents quietly argue through gritted teeth. People asked me why this season took so long to produce, and I always blamed it on not having time. But the truth is, I was haunted by the ghosts of the past. All Americans were. The sun would go down, and all I could think about were the things that once were. Each step in the frosted grass was another step closer to the front line. Every passing set of headlights was a car bomb ticking patiently. In the winter moonlight, I could see the phantasmal victims of war and strife wagging their spectral fingers at their descendants. They judge us because for everything we've achieved, we still can't figure out how to live with each other. We never learned from their mistakes. Those ghosts, see, they don't get it either. The first time we divorced, there was a certain moral clarity involved. There was an undeniable truth known to every slave, every overseer, every abolitionist, every milk-toast fence-sitter, and every man in a nice suit gazing out at the puffs of white cotton in his fields. This time, what truth is there to cling to? What does the word even mean to the people who already live in two separate realities, two separate worlds? America the bold, the beautiful, the unshorn sheep beset on her flanks by hungry wolves. These people who don't want unity. These people who want to slake their thirst with the tears of their enemies. These people who think justice is something extracted from flesh rather than constructed from the soul. But there is one unalienable truth that glitters in these dark moments, something shy and disquieting. 
something that hides in the shadows better than any phantom or poltergeist. Those ghosts who gaze upon their lineage and grin their toothy smirks and pass their silent judgment upon us, they can't see the truth of the world. The single fact that binds us all together, even as we twist apart. America is delirium. My name is Mark Belisle, and this is The Occluded. This is episode one, The Pit. If you know the story of America, you'll know why Gettysburg, Pennsylvania is arguably the place where the United States was saved. Our recent days of strife and division aren't our first. Our first experience with civic divorce started on April 12, 1861, when rebel Confederate troops fired upon Fort Sumter in South Carolina. The act officially tore the nation into two sides. On one side, the remnants of the United States of America vowed to sustain the Union, subdue their rebellious brothers, and end the practice of slavery once and for all. On the other side, the newly forged Confederate States of America picked up arms to defend the practice of slavery and the primacy of states' rights. For two years after the fighting started, Thousands of soldiers from both sides were killed, horrifically injured, and left scarred and battered. The country was showered with the fresh blood of its sons in countless battles. By the time 1863 rolled around, the Union Army was on the ropes. Southern forces had been steadily pushing north, and Confederate General Robert E. Lee embarked on his second invasion of the United States. His goal was simple, push as far as possible perhaps as far as Harrisburg or Philadelphia itself. He would let his soldiers feast on northern crops and demoralize proponents of the war. By pressuring northern cities, General Lee hoped to embolden the fledgling peace movement in the north. And so it was, with these goals in mind, General Lee took the first steps to Pennsylvania and began the summer campaign. By July 1st, 1863, Confederate and Union forces found themselves face to face in the small farming borough of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Over the course of the next 72 hours, Union and Confederate soldiers would rip themselves to shreds. The Union troops were entrenched on the northern side of the town, and the first day of fighting saw Confederate soldiers crashing against them. Time and time again, they gouged the northerners from their positions, forcing them back through town and towards defeat. Within hours, Union General John Reynolds had been shot dead, and his soldiers were outnumbered. Union Major General George G. Meade rallied the Army of the Potomac in the evening in a three-mile line of defense. Meade controlled Culp's Hill, Cemetery Hill, and Little Round Top. General Lee controlled Gettysburg in a six-mile line around the Union position. As night fell upon the dead and dying, the two sides took a deep breath and prepared for some of the worst violence ever perpetrated on American soil. The casualties would be numerous, the dead legion. And as spent shells stained the soil crimson, each departed soul added to the psychic pain inflicted on the town. Men died by the hundreds, 
but while fighting was intense on the front lines, not every soldier had a chance to fight back. And in a battle for the soul of a nation, all hope was truly lost in the pits of hell. July 1st was the day Robert E. Lee decided to push as hard as he could against Union lines. Confederate troops attacked Yankee forces everywhere, and the Army of the Potomac was quickly overwhelmed. Lee's assaults were successful, but there were a few instances where Confederate leadership underestimated the Federal Army. One such place was Seminary Ridge, an elevated stretch of land that was served as a strong defensive position for continued assault. General Lee dispatched two men to secure the site. One was Colonel Edward O'Neill, the other was General Alfred Iverson. They left the Confederate position at Oak Hill and pushed forward through a tree line. They hoped to outflank the Union troops and rout them before they had time to set up a defense. General Alfred Iverson commanded the North Carolina 23rd Infantry, a battle-tested brigade of 1,350 veterans. Iverson ordered his men to, quote, move up and give them hell, while he stayed behind to observe the battle from a distance. Colonel O'Neill's initial attack was repelled by the Union before the North Carolina 23rd made contact. The North Carolinians had no idea that their flank was exposed. Without leadership from their officer, they neglected to send out skirmishers and scouts to make sure the route was safe. Unbeknownst to the men, they were being watched. Deadly sharpshooters led by Union Brigadier Henry Baxter were positioned behind a stone wall. Baxter had already helped deny O'Neill, and he couldn't believe his luck. To see another enemy brigade carelessly marching toward his lines, Union commanders would take the victories where they came. Baxter's veterans waited until the 23rd was within 80 yards of their position, and then the brigadier screamed for his troops to fire. The opening salvo was devastating. 500 men dropped dead mid-step, falling in parade formation. In the next 10 minutes, one of the most one-sided exchanges of the Civil War occurred. Baxter's veterans killed, wounded, or captured up to 900 of the 1,350 men, effectively annihilating Iverson's brigade. A Union artilleryman bore witness to the carnage as the sun rose on the second day of fighting. Later writing, quote, A sight which was perfectly sickening and heartrending in the extreme. It would have satiated the most bloodthirsty and cruel man in God's earth. There were, in a few feet of us, by actual count, 79 North Carolinians dead in a straight line. I stood on their right and looked down their line. It was perfectly dressed. Three had fallen to the front, the rest had fallen backwards. Yet the feet of all these dead men were in a perfect straight line. Great God, when will this horrid war stop? From his position in the distance, Iverson watched his men hit the ground and crawl towards whatever cover they could. The general mistook his men's survival instinct for cowardice. He cursed them, not realizing they'd walked into an ambush. After the violence was quelled for the day, Iverson moved to the front where his slaughtered brigade lay. He surveyed the carnage and then someone told him what had happened there. It's reported he suffered a nervous breakdown on the spot. Major General Lee deemed him unfit for command for the rest of the Gettysburg campaign. 
General Alfred Iverson would forever be remembered for the disastrous events of July 1st. There are many rumors as to why Iverson chose not to accompany his men to the front. Some claimed it was because of U.S. government whiskey and mint juleps served in tin cans. Iverson and his men maybe enjoyed the previous day's light duty a bit too much. Some say the disaster was due to miscommunication, while still others have determined it to be simple cowardice. Iverson had suffered a major wound in the previous battle in May. A spent shell ripped through his groin and made walking difficult. Maybe it was the fear of sustaining another wound that held him back. Maybe it was the increased difficulty in the marching that would have slowed his men down. We will never know the exact reason why Iverson let his men see to themselves. After the battle ended, Iverson's men would be buried in a shallow mass grave where they lay on Seminary Ridge, a place the locals would soon call by a different name, a name synonymous with failure and bloodshed. Now it was called Iverson's Pit. Many haunted places in Gettysburg took time for people to notice the ghosts hiding in the dark. Iverson's pit wasn't one of them. Almost immediately after the fighting ended, sightings of ghosts and unexplainable shadows abounded. Newly hired black farmers refused to work the fields near the pit any time near sunset. Many people in the intervening 150 years have reported all kinds of horrors happening near the site especially near the Double Day Inn. The historic inn was built in 1939, originally as a house for the Reverend Abram Longenecker and his wife Agnes. The large home was built only steps away from where Iverson's troops were slaughtered by Union guns. In fact, the property contains the stone wall Baxter's veterans used for cover when they opened up on the North Carolina 23rd. If the good reverend and his wife ever noticed the ghosts said to be walking the killing fields, they didn't remark upon them. After the Longeneckers died, their three daughters inherited the inn and divided it into three apartments. The property stayed in the family until 1987, when it was sold and converted into a bed and breakfast. It's the only lodging available on Gettysburg Battlefield to this day. Since opening to the public, hundreds of people have reported ghostly sightings and unexplained phenomenon. Spectral soldiers are said to roam the halls in the darkness, and candid snapshots capture floating orbs, streaks of light, mysterious shadows. Tour the property, and you'll catch the scent of gun smoke or burning tobacco in the lonely rooms and quiet corners. And perhaps the most mysterious thing of all, some witnesses claim to have seen the sad, melancholic man in a Confederate uniform. He's said to gaze out upon the pit where so many North Carolinians died in a matter of moments, cut down like wheat. These same witnesses say it couldn't be anyone but General Alfred Iverson. Iverson lived with the shame for almost 50 more years until his death in 1911. Does his spirit still find itself tied to the mass grave that bears his name? Or has Gettysburg perhaps recorded the moment he learned of his men's fate to be played out for all of eternity, until the fields of Gettysburg are reduced to dust by the march of time? Those are not questions we can answer. For the living, 
we can only respect the past for its effects on the present. Because after the war had moved on from Gettysburg, life grew from the bitter fruits of death. A farmer who lived next to Iverson's pit made a grim observation to a neighbor that his wheat field grew tallest above the bodies of the Confederate soldiers buried below. A grim harvest from bloody seeds. Thank you for joining us on this minisode of The Occluded. I hope you enjoyed the little walk down these war-torn paths of American history. It would mean the world to us if you rated and reviewed the show on your podcatcher of choice. If you don't feel like rating and reviewing, that's okay. You can always tell a friend or transcribe these words and bury them deep into a wheat field to be forgotten forever. If you've ever been to the battlefields of Gettysburg or want to give me your opinion on the best cocktail recipe you could serve in a dirty tin, write into the show at randomdrawpodcast at gmail.com. Season 2 is coming soon, and I would love to hear your spookiest stories. The Occluded is a Random Draw production and was written and hosted by Mark Belisle, that's me, and produced and edited by super skeptic Dave Hubbard. He told me once that he'd rather lose a leg than an arm. Let's hope he never has to lose either. Next time on The Occluded, we continue our exploration of Gettysburg on a date with the devil. In the meantime, stay safe, open your mind, and keep watching the shadows. <laughs>